Welcome to the pulse that moves the triangle world today. This one size fits all broadcast is a vibrant collection of stories, medical breakthroughs, helpful tips, what's trending, events, and boundless other adventures. It's a conversation pit of comedians, politicians, authors, chefs, sports figures, experts, the common and the uncommon. Here's the host of Triangle 411, Mary Inspreffer. Hi, friends. Today's topic is Survivor Corps, the largest grassroots movement in America dedicated to actively ending the COVID-19 pandemic. The movement is educating, connecting, motivating, and mobilizing those affected by COVID-19 to support all ongoing scientific, medical, and academic research to find a cure and help to develop a vaccine. Diana Barron is the founder of Survivor Corps, and she was one of the first people in her area to test positive for COVID-19. Can you imagine being one of the first while in the beginning when everything was so unknown? While scrambling to get medical information and testing, she became an advocate and activist for herself and others through this organization. Diana, we are so happy you are here to share your story, everything you went through, and to spotlight some of the hope on the horizon that Survivor Corps is providing. Welcome, Diana. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, we're so excited to get the word out about Survivor Corps. Uh, so let's just get right into it. Um, wow. Yeah. One of the first. Now, being one of the very first to get COVID, life must have become a maze with no exit. How unbelievably scary it must have been in the early stages when everyone knew nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, I never in a million years thought that I would be the first person in my area to get COVID. Um, and I ended up being not only one of the first people diagnosed in my area, I was the first person to go public. Um, with my identity, there had been a couple of people who had been diagnosed, but they were uh, keeping quite silent on who they were. And I really had to fight to get tested um, because at that point, you needed to prove that you had been exposed. You had had one on one close contact with somebody who had tested positive for at least 10 to 15 minutes, um, which was, you know, impossible because Nobody had, very few people had tested positive at all, and nobody had revealed their identity. So it was a real sort of Kafka-esque situation that um, I needed to, it, I ended up having to have my, my congressman um, step in in order to get me tested. And it was at a point when we really knew absolutely nothing about the virus, um, so much so that when... I started getting um, gastro issues in the second week of it. I thought that I also, I had a stomach virus on top of COVID um, because at that point we didn't even know that GI issues could be related to COVID. It took me uh, to get to page 10 of Google Scholar to find one report of four people in Wuhan who had experienced diarrhea. That was it. We now know. Um, that almost, you know, 40 to 50% of people 
experienced GI issues with COVID. And I want to um, go over those it, symptoms in a, in a little bit further down the road, yeah. because I, I, I think that is important. How do you think you got COVID? Oh, I know exactly where I got it. Um, I was at a meeting on the evening of March 9th where uh, several people in that meeting were at a conference at the Sheridan Hotel from March 2nd to 7th in New York City, and it ended up being a super spreader event. Um, so um, when they showed up at the meeting on the 9th, I, they did not know that they had been exposed. But unfortunately, when they were notified by the head of the conference, it was the um, American Group Psychotherapist Association. Uh, I believe that's what it's called. Um, they, they sent out a notification to everybody who had attended, but those people did not. Uh, share that information with the people they had exposed, unfortunately. Mm. That That's, you know, and also to me, the one of the scariest things about this is you can be asymptomatic. And then that's like a battle, how to even fight that. Because if somebody's sneezing and coughing, okay, you know, to stay away from them, even in just, you know, even just from a flu or the common cold. But when someone's there with no symptoms, it's it's challenging for sure. Um, right. And, and they ended up being, they did end up, um, everyone at the meeting was infected, was symptomatic mm. and, and of the eight people, one person died two uh, weeks later of COVID. Oh my gosh. Um, from that exposure. So I think that the, I mean, the real best rule of thumb is to assume that everybody is positive for it. Um, because there's no way to know. There's no, there's no sign. Um, taking your temperature is a, really a false uh, measure of security, um, given the fact that, you know, all four people in my family had COVID. I was the only one to have a fever. And mm. that was one of the more minor symptoms. Um, many, many people get COVID without a fever. So these temperature checks are really um, not particularly useful. The best, the best course of action is to assume that everybody could have it and could be passing it on to you. That really makes sense. I, I I've heard a lot of people say that about a false, a false feeling of security. But I guess you know you, we do what we can do, and we try and make ourselves feel better. But it, it's a tough one, and that's why I'm glad there's Survivor Corps. But let's let let's go back a little bit. That is like bizarre. You had to get your congressperson involved. Um, I know. Well, I, I I pushed so hard to get tested because. I was a photographer and I had just photographed an event at one of our local elementary schools. Um, it was a dance performance by the younger children. So the gymnasium was packed with children, parents, and teachers. And I was moving around in extremely close proximity. And so I was terrified that I was patient zero in my town and that I had just infected, you know, my entire town. That's why I, I fought so hard to get tested. Mm -hmm. Um, because of that, I, I was, I was terrible. I was terrified that, um, I had passed it on to, to others. So when you got tested, how long did you have to wait for the results and what was that waiting like for you? Um, I, I presented with symptoms on March 13th. It was Friday the 13th. Oh, um, gosh. You know, you can read into that what you want. Um, I ended up getting tested on the 15th, and I got my results back on the 18th. Um, my, I then I passed 
the virus on to both my daughter and my husband. Um, my husband went and got tested, um, I believe, the day after I did, and it took him 10 to 12 days oh. to get his results. Um, so, you know, it, it, the, the this lag in getting your results, is it, it really makes the, the test um, really not as useful because you know, people need to quarantine during that entire time until they have their results. And I'm afraid that people aren't. Um, they need to do their own contact tracing because we have no formal contact tracing, you know, system set up. Um, and people need to really be responsible, um, have a high level of personal responsibility when it comes to this and make sure that if they are infected, that they are the end of that line of transmission. And again, in the very beginning for you, uh, you know, major pat on the back, because when when you were going through it, it was kind of a sink or swim. There, there was no one to tell you what to do, what medicine to take, and how long was really safe to quarantine. Exactly. So I, I, I was in isolation for 18 days. Um, I stayed in isolation until I got a follow-up negative test. Um, you know, I I did not want to take any any chances that I could possibly pass this on to anybody. And at that point, again, we just didn't know. So when I went back at 14 days to get retested, um, I still showed up positive for the virus. It wasn't until 21 days. And at that time... The only reason why I was able to get tested on the back end of the virus went at a point where we didn't even have enough tests for our frontline workers is because I was the, I went to uh, donate my own plasma. I was the first participant at Columbia University's convalescent plasma program. And in order to donate plasma, you, at that point, you needed to have a follow up negative test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think now they, they require like two, follow-up tests with no COVID before they really declare you COVID-free. Like you get your one and then you have to come and have two more negative tests before they right. really fail. But most, most, most people are not really going through that procedure because if it takes 10 days, 12 days to get your test results, um, you've just added on another 12 days mm -hmm. <laughs> of quarantining mm -hmm. to the, the 14 days you've already done. So um, I'm afraid that most people who are not hospitalized are really not being tested on the back end. Well, it would be a challenge, especially if you've got a job waiting for you to wait for all those returns. And what if you, I've heard stories where people do show that you know, even once they've gone through it, they keep showing positive. So it can get rather length, lengthy. And um, so let me ask you this couple things. I know you had a challenge with the health department. Again, they even they didn't know what they were doing as far as getting they the word no out. Idea. They had no idea. I got I don't that was my only call during my entire time with COVID. I had one call with my GP with my general practitioner who knew nothing. And um, actually, when the Board of Health called me and told, you know, to check in. I got I, just one phone call and I asked how long I should, um, I should stay isolated. They're like, we really, really just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess 14 days and I mm -hmm. said, okay, 14 days from what? Um, and <laughs> so they, you know, I guess 
the date of testing. So that's what I that's what I followed. Um, but I just basically chose the most conservative route possible. Um, what we are seeing though is that after 14 days, um, the virus particles that are showing up are generally remnants. They are dead particles. And so um, most people can assume that they are no longer contagious after those 14, 14 days. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you because you're yeah. providing a lot of insight on still not, you know, we still don't know everything there is to know and talking about the false oh, sense of so security. And, there's so much yeah. more to learn. I mean, look, when, when, when this first came about, we thought that it was a respiratory disease that only affected the... Um, immunocompromised and the elderly. And here we are now knowing that, in fact, it's a clotting, you know, disease, it's a vascular disease in many respects, and we are all um, vulnerable, every last one of us. And part of uh, Survivor Corps' mission is getting the word out about all this information. I do want to get into the meat of the organization because there is a lot of optimism and, and anticipation that solutions to this pandemic may lay within your group, which you refer to as the epicenter of hope. So let's, let's get into a couple things on this. One more question before we do that, just personal, and then we'll get on to the organization. Certainly at one sure. point, the fear of dying must have taken hold of you and, and, and even if only for a moment. So what was that like? What was going on in your head? I'm sorry, can you, I didn't, the, what was it? So at some point in all of this, you must have had experienced the fear of dying. It must have taken hold of you, even if just for Oh, a yeah, it, it, was, it was terrifying. I mean, there was, there was a moment, um, I think I was about seven days in to it. Um, I mean, and keep in mind, being in isolation on its own can drive you a little crazy, um, having a novel virus that nobody knows how to deal with is um, anxiety-producing, to say the least. And it was when I read this story, I, I was reading the story about David Latt, um, who's a, you know, very well-known in the New York legal world, and I used to be a lawyer. And he's about my age, and he, I was reading about his experience. He was hospitalized and on a ventilator. And thankfully, he has recovered. But at that moment, it was really unclear whether or not he was going to make it. And when I read about his experience, I had really a, a mental breakdown um, because I realized that I that that could be me, um, and that and I knew that there was this period of time around seven to ten days where into the virus where you could crash. And I wasn't through that time period yet. Uh, and it was, it was, I mean, it was scary. It was so scary. Well, thank goodness that you made it through because, yeah. he, you know, God had a plan for you because you are just doing tremendous mm -hmm. things with Survivor Corps. Um, I wanted to ask you about this. There has been some recent movement in this arena as far as convalescent plasma, one of the therapies that have been, undergoing testing and clinical trials. And just recently, the Food and Drug Administration announced that it has authorized the use of blood plasma from patients who have recovered from COVID-19 as a treatment for the disease. What are your thoughts about this authorization through the Trump administration? 
So I have, you know, I, I, ha- I have a lot of thoughts about it, actually. I am a huge proponent of convalescent plasma. Um, one of the missions from day one of Survivor Corps, and part of the reason why I created Survivor Corps was to mobilize an army of survivors to donate their plasma and support science in every way possible. And we now have, so I have donated personally um, eight times, which is um, the limit at the New York Blood Center. My first donation went to research through Columbia University, and every subsequent donation, I happen to be a universal donor. So um, my doctor called my plasma literal liquid gold because only 4% of the population is AD positive like I am. Um, Blood matches and plasma matches are different. Um, Before I get a lot of of emails (laughs) trying to correct me on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's most powerful is that we have a lot of members whose lives have been saved by convalescent plasma. the, the difficulty with this new authorization, I believe, is that it could get in the way of the rest of the studies and trials that need to be completed to figure out exactly when the best time is to administer the, the plasma. So up until now, it was really being used mostly on a compassionate care basis. So being given to patients who had no other options and were at end of life. Um, so it was being given to people who were already in, you know, full-on organ failure. So whether or not, you know, it was working in each case was really difficult to determine um, because people's, you know, bodies were really under such attack at that point that it was hard to pinpoint that it was plasma, you know, whether they lived or died because of the plasma. Um, and we need those studies to continue to happen. We need to know when in the viral cycle it should be administered. Um, we need to know how much. We need to know the exact type, um, if what is the threshold titer level. So that is, you know, how many, by that I mean, so how many antibodies do you have in your plasma? Just because you test positive for antibodies doesn't mean it's not black or white. Um, you can have a high level. You can have a low level. Um, I happened to five and, five and a half months later, after eight donations, I still have a high titer level of antibodies, which also goes to show you that by donating your plasma and your antibodies, you can be saving lives, but you are not giving away your antibodies. You are sharing them. Your body continues to create them. And we're also seeing that a lot of the immunity having to do with antibodies is tied in with T-cells and the T-cell response. But I am a huge proponent of convalescent plasma, not just in its use right now being uh, given directly to patients, but in the creation of a hyperimmune globulin product, which is really, I believe, going to be our best stopgap effort until we have or if we ever have a globally accessible vaccine. And what hyperimmune goblin product is, is I don't know if you're a chef or anything or like to cook, but imagine taking a huge vat of plasma, which is the yellowish liquid, you know, the yellowish watery part of your blood, 
um, not the red card, that they actually give you right back. So it's easier than donating blood. But they, they imagine making a soft reduction from gallons and gallons of plasma. So you have created a really, really intense concentration of antibodies, which could hopefully be used even prophylactically. So given to people before they are infected, and maybe we can give it to teachers before they go back to school. Mm. Um, you know, there are there's such, you know, uh, unlimited possibilities of what can be done. And there's nothing new about convalescent plasma either. It's been used. So, I mean, it was announced by the White House the other day as if it was a new discovery. Um, convalescent plasma has been used since 1894, 1895. Um, when it was developed for use against diphtheria. The Nobel Prize was won for it in 1901. Um, it has been used against the measles. It was used in, during the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. It was used more recently for Ebola, for um, SARS, H1N1. Um, it has a very, very long history, and the one thing that we know is that it is generally safe. Um, so that also needs to be kept in mind when it comes to convalescent plasma. But, you know, if, if you have the antibodies, please, please go donate. It is one of the most satisfying experiences you can have in your entire life. How many opportunities do you ever have in a lifetime to, to save one life? And in a 28-minute donation where they actually return the red and white blood cells back to you, so you're not even dizzy afterwards or anything. I drove myself there and back each time. And with each donation, you can save three to four lives. I mean, that's extraordinary. That is extraordinary. So empowering. So true. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, you, you touch on something here that I picked up from your information, and maybe you can tell us because there's things people can do even if you're not a COVID-19 survivor, as far as like research and development things go, like different studies go going on, can you tell us a little bit how someone who has not had COVID-19 could also help? Oh, absolutely. Um, so we have a, in addition to our Facebook group, um, which is an open group available, you know, open to everybody, um, Survivor Corps, C-O-R-P-S. Um, and we are nearing 100,000 members, and um, which I have to say, it is I, I call it the epicenter of hope because it is literally the most civil conversation going on among 98,000 strangers in America right now. Um, in a time when everything feels so fractured, um, it is a place of support and hope and compassion, and it's a beautiful thing to see. We also have a website, survivorcore.com, and it is a one-stop shop of how to give back. So we list the various studies that you can participate in, whether you haven't had COVID, whether you actively have COVID now, whether you've recovered from COVID. Um, there, there are ways that everybody can play a role. Um, I sign up for every single one available. I've donated my blood to various um, vaccine studies. I participate in one of my favorites is one out of Stanford that tracks my Fitbit. Um, and they think that with enough participants 
And they need people who have not had COVID, who have active COVID, who, you know, they need everybody to participate. They think that they can monitor from whatever uh, wearable fitness device you have. They can detect that you have been, been infected with COVID before you show symptoms. That's incredible. That is incredible. Is that just through your regular Fitbit or are we talking a new device? No, I mean, it could be an Apple Watch. I just happen to wear a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. Um, the Aura Ring, you could do it with. Um, any any wearable device that tracks your heart rate. Um, some of um, a Garmin. I think any, the more data it collects. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one that you wear while you sleep helps because that's when they're looking at your resting heart rate. And if you look at my resting heart rate for the course of the year, um, I'm a little bit of a data hound, so <laughs> excuse me, but um, you look at it, and there it looks like Mount Everest in the middle of my year, um, and that's when I had COVID. Mm. And that was my that was a that was a year long track of my resting heart rate. Um, gotcha. You could see my weight dip in the same way during that time. Um, you could see my sleep dip because one of my uh, one of my most profound, one of my many symptoms was extreme insomnia, um, which happens to actually a lot of people. It's, it's such a strange virus that it can present in so many ways. But Give us a few of the new ways. And, Give us some I'm of sorry? the new ways. We were going to just talk real, we, we're about to wrap here, but a couple things I want to go back to. You mentioned sleep. So maybe just give us a few of the updated symptoms because it started with the cough and the fever and you added nausea. Uh, what else has the health department added to that list so people know? Well, the CDC has listed 12 symptoms. We put out a study um, a few weeks ago that listed 97. Which are? Um, and so everything from, I mean, the most common ones were shortness of breath. Um, and these are lingering symptoms. These are symptoms that people are still experiencing um, after they should have already recovered. Um, and that's one of, that's the thing that I really want to highlight. Um, one third of people who get COVID are not recovering. Um, that, let that sink in. We are close to two, uh, close to six million infections in the United States. That means that we have close to two million people who are suffering from long haul COVID. Um, and so they are experiencing, um, extreme neurological issues, um, tachycardia. We are seeing things as extreme as COVID onset diabetes, COVID onset lupus. Um, we are seeing a huge number of people with hair loss. That is the one thing we know, um, as devastating as it could, as, as it is, um, it will resolve. Um, we are seeing people with ocular issues with, you know, it is really affecting every organ system in the body. And there, when you look at the, this list of 98 symptoms and the fact that people are not recovering, it should really be a stark warning to the world that this is not a matter of, okay, either I end up lucky and it's just like I had a flu or I am unlucky and I end up on a ventilator. There is a huge, huge bucket of people in between who are being told to actively stay home, do not see your doctor, 
They are not under anyone's medical care, and they are not getting better. So I just actually got to visit the Mount Sinai's post-COVID care center the other day, and it was absolutely incredible. And But it needs to be a model for centers like that to open throughout the country and throughout the world. So I'm hoping people listening will be renewed about the urgency of this disease and want to participate and get involved. So let me ask you this, other than the usual washing hands, wearing masks, distancing, like the, the common things we know, Diana, if you could right now give our listeners a three step action plan to help combat this pandemic, what would you advise? I would stay home if you can. I mean, there is no safe party. There is no safe beach outing if you are going to need a, to use a public bathroom. You need to have a plan for every time you leave your house. You need to think about it beforehand, know where you are going, go in and follow that plan. Um, this is not a time to be wandering around to, um, to stop in, you know, to check on somebody. Don't go into other people's houses. Don't let other people into your home. Um, if you have to congregate, do it outside in a backyard with only one other family and keep it to that one other family. Um, I know that we can't stay locked away forever, but we have to take this more seriously. And although the mortality rate is going down, the infection rate is only going up. And knowing that people are not recovering from this, we are, and let me add that the people who are not recovering, these are not the people who are hospitalized. These are young, healthy people. We're seeing people in their 20s who are marathon runners who now are on month five of having COVID and cannot walk up a flight of stairs. Their lives are being ruined. They are writing their living wills. It is, it is so tragic to watch that if you can do anything, anything in your power, you need to work with your local school boards and make sure that you know, if you are sending your child back to school, that you know what their reporting system is so that if there is an active case of COVID in your child's school, will you be notified? Or is the plan that only other children in that classroom will be notified? You need to know that information. And you need to get involved to make sure that whatever policies are set up are good enough because there has not been, unfortunately, the national leadership that we need. And so we really have to take it upon ourselves as communities to look out for ourselves, our own families, and our own community. Um, and so it is, it is not worth that get-together if you are invited to a wedding I don't care whether it's indoors or outdoors. Um, send a lovely gift and let them know that you look forward to celebrating, you know, their first anniversary together when this will hopefully be behind us. Well, you're an amazing woman to start Survivor Corps and pass on Thank all you. this information and all the amazing work that you and your team are doing and uh I'm going to actually we do a nonprofit spotlight and I'm just going to continue with Survivor Corps so I will give the website again at that time but 
Thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So as I said, continuing with our nonprofit spotlight, now we're going to just stay with Survivor Corps, which is empowering COVID-19 survivors to be part of the solution. As a rapidly growing grassroots network, edging up towards 97,000 COVID-19 survivors, the group is providing support for those who have been infected or impacted by the virus. Survivor Corps is helping to capture the information that COVID-19 patients are reporting about their short and long-term symptoms so that the scientific community can learn from their experiences. By educating the public on how to get involved in research and treatments, empowering survivors, increasing awareness, and treatment about the plasma and other issues, On key research projects, Survivor Corps is helping the world beat COVID-19. See how you can get involved whether you have had COVID-19 or not and join in the fight against the pandemic by going to SurvivorCorps.com. SurvivorCorps.com. Well, it's time to high-five and say goodbye Catch us on Pandora, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc. Or listen at triangle411.buzzsprout.com. I'm Mary Innsbrucker for Triangle 411. Today, dot, 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 be part of the solution. 